Welcome to season four of And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with the great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy And The Writer Is, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. Today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. Built for musicians, by musicians. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a professional website and EPK for your music. Whether you're looking to book more gigs or need an affordable solution to manage your direct-to-fan sales and mailing list, you can use Banzoogle's simple tools to design a website and store that both you and your fans will love. Go to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code ATWI to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's ATWI to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. This week's episode is sponsored by BMI. Full disclosure, Joe and I are both BMI songwriters. So we didn't write this, but we believe it. BMI, we celebrate your talent, value your music, and champion your rights. To all our songwriters and composers, your passion is ours. BMI, music moves our world. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host Ross Golan. Today's icon signed her first publishing and record deal before she could vote. You first heard her voice on the Billboard Hot 100 with the Fort Minor song, Where'd You Go?, featuring herself as Holly Brooke. Shortly after, she scored her first number one 12 times platinum co-write with Eminem's Love the Way You Lie featuring Rihanna. Then she did a little ditty jam called Coming Home and Dr. Dre joint called I Need a Doctor. Plus, massive records with some of the biggest names in the music history, including Zed, Beyonce, and Macklemore. But her most important song was on her 2013 solo album called Back From The Dead because it's the only song <laughs> she and I ever worked on. <laughs> I love that. By the way, she is from the middle of Wisconsin, so go Midwesterners. <laughs> this writer has designed one of the most unique and honest careers of any writer we've ever had. And the writer is the Skylar Gray. Wow, what an intro. Thank save, you. You can save that. <laughs> um, so we were just talking about how love is different in our generation, it seems. I don't know, I just feel like there's this shift happening 
um, it seemed like to be a kind of almost accepted thing to be disloyal and um, to just like hook up with as many people as possible like just even a few years ago and then like I don't know if it's just because I'm in love so it's like that that scenario where it's like you buy the car and then you see that car everywhere <laughs> it might be that because like now I'm in love and now I see love everywhere so it might just be that but I, I feel like the trend is changing a little bit now it's like cool to to be fully in love and like just put it all on the line and uh, and be Did, loyal. Have you had you ever been in love before? Um, I thought I was in love before, but no. Yeah. Well, you're recently engaged. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. When are you getting married? Don't know yet. Okay. Yeah, we we aren't in a rush. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, let's we'll go through uh, some of your history so people can learn. About you, you grew up in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. Yes, Maisomany. Maisomany. Fifteen hundred people, small town, no stoplights, no grocery stores. Who introduced you to music? I was born into a very musical family. My mom was a musician. She played guitar, banjo, harp, Celtic harp, um, lap dulcimer. You name it. My dad was in a barbershop quartet. Uh, and then they were also in like a bunch of musicals and I got into musical theater with them. And then um, I took piano lessons when I was six. That's when I started playing. And actually I, I played a, a, an original piece for my first recital when I was six. Um, so I guess I just like always wanted to create the music rather than play somebody else's piece of music. It was just kind of like always my thing. But then I, I started a band with my mom at age six as well. And we toured around the Midwest and uh, played like elementary schools and libraries and sang like kid songs and folk songs. What was the band called? Generations. Oh, cute. Fitting. Uh, wait, so um, out of 1,500 people in a town, you happen to be born into the family that where everyone plays all the instruments in town, I would assume. Yeah, pretty much. It was <laughs> so like my everyone mom probably was expected like the you to be like, oh yeah, musician this one woman. Is, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, was it local musical theater kind of thing? Yeah, uh, a, a little bit of. I mean, we would venture out into the the next town over, and you know, get a little bit more um, visibility. And then I did some stuff that was like. Actually, I was in an opera when I was ten, and that was like professional theater. So that's your first real professional moment, or I guess no, when you were six. My and you're my, in my first professional moment as a performer was just my mo- my mom and I. Our first gig was at a library on Mother's Day, and we played like a forty five minute set and got paid. <laughs> so crazy! And then we Do made you, three albums. You made three albums? Yeah, by were the they, time I was fourteen. Were they distributed? They were just independently or? distributed. We just sold them at our shows and stuff. Did you write on those? Were a they little original? bit, a little bit. Um, I wasn't much of a lyricist yet at, at age six. Um, I had like a lot of melodic ideas and stuff, but uh, I had no life experience, so I didn't really have much to write about. Do you remember your first lyrics? Yeah, I know my very first lyric I wrote was actually when I was three, and it was about a green popsicle. Oh, nice. I don't remember exactly what the details of those lyrics were. And then. Um, was it lime or was it apple? <laughs> lime. Okay, like, yeah, okay. Lime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, but the first song I wrote that like became a song like we recorded was called The Sky Song. And I was, I think, 
I th- it was on our first album together. I think I was seven or eight when I wrote it. And um, I was in a swimming pool in Hawaii looking up at the moon. And my dad was back home in Wisconsin. And I looked up at the moon and I was like wondering if he could see the moon at the same time as me. Aww. And I was like trying, it, it was kind of like the, an existential moment my first like real existential moment as a as a kid you know like thinking about how big the the universe is and and so I was looking up the moon and I was missing my dad and I wondered if he could see the moon too and so the lyric I wrote for that song was is this the same sky that hangs over the ocean is it the same sky that's over Wisconsin that was my rhyme (laughs) is this the same sky that hangs over me is it the same sky that's over the world and my family and Aww. so that was like the first song that I ever wrote, really. That's, that's really sweet. Um, tear, tear, maybe I know, two. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, did you? Were you learning about the? I, I mean, if you're recording these songs, were you recording in a studio? Were you co- yeah. recording them? So in a, in sort of a proper studio. So Where we were you to, going to Madison? In Madison, there was a guy named Randy Green, and he had a, a really nice studio. Um, but of course, it was back in the days of analog. Uh-huh. So we couldn't couldn't do everything we can do now. So when I go back and listen to the albums, but it's kind of actually cool to listen to them. There's like a lot of mistakes and it's not perfect. Yeah, but there's something cool about that. Oh, hundred you know? um, percent. Did you ever go to classes? Like if you're if you're you know six. You years, mean like school? Yeah, I mean I feel like I, it sounds like you I just like missed from, a lot of school. To be honest, I actually the school. Uh, came to us and was just like, she misses so much school, she's going to have to pay um, $25 a day to, to come to school. They like made this whole argument that I missed too much school and I was going to have to pay for it if I wanted to keep coming. Did you keep going? Yeah. Um, I think we talked him out of that, but eventually I dropped out of high school. Yeah. I, I dropped out two years early from high school. Did you ever end up graduating? No. Yeah. I don't have a GED or anything. Yeah. I'm a total loser. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure everyone, uh, that's like the most common question when they hear your hit songs. Like, I wonder if she has. No, it's funny too because I had like a. What was her I, GPA? It was like 4.0. <laughs> I, always, I think it was like 3.9 or something. I always tell people what that I, gra- I graduated college early, which I tell people all the time, but I never tell them my GPA, which was terrible. Oh, my really? GPA was like just above passing, but I tell people, I'm like, oh no, I graduated early. Because yeah. that's like, wow, that sounds so impressive. Yeah. I just blew up that's my hilarious. own spot, but whatever. No, mine is kind of the opposite. Like, I think I might have had the highest GPA of somebody who dropped out. Yeah. Well, which you know, you're, you're. I don't want to get into like lyrics later yet because we can talk about it when we talk about your songs. But they all have, they're so intricate lyrically that I thought it was interesting. I mean, I guess when you're six, you just don't have the life experience. But you obviously seem really, you know, analytical. Mm. And I'm not sure if to that's a fault. to a fault. Yeah, I think what I'm overly mean? analytical. Why? I don't know. I just get in my head a lot. About I like uh, overthink lyrics sometimes. Yeah, when have you really overthought lyrics? You mean versus like what? What kind of lyric would? Well, sometimes an, a song it's better to just have it feel good. Mm. But I'm like, it has to say like every line has to like mean something. Mean something and and be, support the you know and and that's. It's very musical theater, actually. I mean, yeah, in that way it, that you have to like move the story forward. Yeah, exactly. You know? and I maybe that's why I I go that route with it, but. Um, and also, like, just I overanalyze my emotions and I try to put it into. A, I mean, I think it's a good quality to have, 
but it's also good to know when to stop and right. just be like, hey, this feels good, let it be. In a way that's where co-writing, if it's done right, is useful. Yeah. You know, otherwise you need a lot of space. Yeah. So you can go back and be like, oh yeah, this this wasn't very good um by yourself. Otherwise, you know, I think it's really hard for someone to write on their own very quickly and have it be analytical also. You know, I feel like you can write really quickly on your own and then you need to be able to go back the next day and listen to it and be like, oh yeah, you know what? I could actually change that. I yeah. Change, at least for me, it, it feels like it's hard to write quickly on my own and have it be smart. Yeah, I think it's different every time for me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes like the smartest lyrics come out when I'm not trying right. um, because it just has been, you know, kind of like brewing inside of me without me even thinking about it and then suddenly I sit down at the piano and it just kind of comes out and it's like, whoa, where did that come from? Almost when, like I channel it. When did you write, record your first album? I mean, on your own because like obviously um, you were doing this generation project. That after I moved to LA and I got a record deal, I was 17 with my first record deal. So did you move 18. out without your parents? Yeah. What did your parents think of that? Um, my mom was supportive because she was, you know, music was her dream. And so she let me like use my college savings on demos and staying out here. <laughs> what about your dad? My dad was concerned about me not going to college and finishing school and all that stuff. Um, I don't think he necessarily believed in music as a career path, even though he was a huge music fan and singer himself. Um, but he also knew that he couldn't stop me because I I was always so stubborn. <laughs> so he just would rather like us have a good relationship. So he's like, go do what you got to do, you know. When did they recognize that you didn't need a college education? Because I mean, it was pretty quick after you you moved. Out I moved here. to LA and I got a record deal a year later, so that was pretty quick. Yeah, with Warner Brothers, um, Lincoln Park signed yeah. me. Yeah, Brad um, Delson did. Brad Delson. Yep. We should talk about Brad Delson. All right. I love Brad Delson. <laughs> I haven't seen him in so long. <laughs> I talked to him. He he's the kind of person. He's the, the guitarist for Lincoln Park. Really smart guy. Analytical. One of their main Super. co-writers. Yeah. Um, you know, he is he's he's awesome. To me, he's like he calls me out of nowhere to just talk for an hour and a half, nothing about music, just about life. And then I you know, I talk to him a month later or something. But um, cool. when you recorded your demos, where did you do that? Um, John Inglesby, he was uh, Oh yeah. That's really interesting. Okay, so you met John Inglesby. So he was always really yeah? nice to me yeah? and, and helped me a lot. Yeah. Um, and then another couple was uh, Heather Holly and Rob Hoffman. Okay. They they really helped me a lot too. And you and so the, the demos I made with them are the ones that eventually you know got, got me the, the, firm. the record deal and yeah I actually met some guy in a hallway at um, Heather and Rob's studio who was like just some random guy I don't remember who he was but he was like you need to get a lawyer and I was like okay and so I actually got a lawyer. He gave me the the number Gary Stiffelman, and I called him, and I got a lawyer before I got a manager or anything. And he's the one who introduced me to my manager. It's actually a good. <laughs> it, it's actually probably the right order of things. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's hard because if you meet a manager or a label or a publisher before you have a lawyer, all those people can make you sign things. Yeah, that you probably shouldn't sign without the lawyer there, and. You know, it's easy for them to say, okay, well then, why don't you sign this and then I'll help you find a lawyer. No, you it know? probably is the right way to go, but if it doesn't you, necessarily yeah. like 
happen like that. Of course not. You know, of course not. Um, that's nice that you were protected. Yeah, you know, by having yeah. that lawyer to start. Yeah, so he introduced me to Dan Dalton at the firm. Oh, nice. And then, um, you know, Dan Dalton also had like like uh, he um, has Jurassic, Damian Marley. Didn't he have now? Jurassic he had five? Jurassic Five yeah, yeah, yeah. back then. Yeah. Um, and then Lincoln Park was also signed to the firm with uh, Rob McDermott. Rob McDermott, yep. Yeah. And so then, I'm trying to remember how it all happened, but you know the the London Hotel here yeah. in LA? It used to be the Bellage or okay. something. And there used to be a bar slash restaurant there that was like Russian. And there was this, or, or Ukrainian, um, there was this Ukrainian guy named Dimitri that ran the, the bar. Anyway... Um, I remember going there and there was a piano in the corner and I like played a few songs for Brad Delson. He was like sitting on the couch in the lounge and um, that's kind of how he was like, okay, I want to sign you. That's so crazy. <laughs> that you just happened to be playing for, at that time too, you're talking about, you know, the probably top five biggest band in the world. Yeah, they were massive. You know. Um, so he introduces you to the rest of the guys in the band. Is that how that works? Or he introduces you to yeah, uh, and the Warner label, or whatever. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, you signed that deal, and that must have been probably the craziest news for anybody you who's know, ever from Wisconsin. Yes, then no, because I was so uneducated with the music industry. The only industry I knew was independent music. And I didn't know what a record deal was when I got one. I had that wasn't my dream to come out here and like get a record deal because I didn't even know what a record deal was. All I wanted to do was make music. Right. So it wasn't like this like oh my god holy shit experience like I got a record deal. It was just like it was oh, just yeah, like cool. okay so what is this like what are we doing does that mean I'm making an album like it wasn't like because I think some people like are very celebratory about a record deal and at the time I just I was like I don't even know what this is but. Did you walk <laughs> into that Warner building though that has like because I mean yeah. you know. That building's like a really classic record label building, you know, where you walk in and everybody's really separated there. It's it's kind of a strange shape, um, but you walk in and you see how oh, weird, you know. They have not including you know Sire and some of that, but you know Prince and David Bowie and Tom Petty and so many like major artists. It's got to be a, a kind of a strange place to walk into. As somebody who's like, oh, cool! Like, I love all these artists. Yeah, but it's sort of on another planet totally. than where you are when you first walk into. Oh, it's like know, it's hard to it's, find the place, and you walk in, it's like, what is that? Yeah, <laughs> you know? totally, totally. Um, how do you go from that to Fort Minor? And so, when I signed the deal with um, Machine Shop Warner Brothers. Um, that was about around the time Mike Shinoda was putting together a solo project, and he just called me up one one day and was like, "Hey, will you sing on this song?" And so I went into the studio and didn't even think anything of it. Like I just was like, "Yeah, I'll do it," and then it just blew up. That simple. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> How did you feel about it? I mean, that's got to be a life changing thing to then it was see so your because then you see your face places. You're like, oh, this isn't just. Yeah. No, we like played the last episode of TRL with that song. Like. <laughs> so all of a sudden you're going to New York. Yeah, and... we went on tour. It was like my first real tour. Did you like it? Um, I really did. I really did like it. I did some tours of my own as well. Um, and then like some 
had some opening act situations. So it was like my first experience, like really in the music game. But I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't know how to respond to the success of that song. Like, it's almost like I, I went from zero to a hundred real quick and didn't know what to do at that point. Um, because I didn't have the experience or the foundation to really support it. So like following it up with my own stuff and like figuring out how to, to do that properly. Um, and like even just spending, like I got anxious about releasing music after Where'd You Go instead of like spending the time to make the right music. I just put out music. Interesting. And I really liked the songs, but I think it would have been... Um, more in my in my best interest to like find the the song to follow that up, you know. Sure. And I didn't really do that. I just put out an album that I liked. Is that what you would have done? And so what you would have done differently is make sure you were prepared with follow up records. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I wasn't prepared to follow up the success of that song and like where parlay was, it into more. Where was Warner? Where um, was your management? Well, that's the other thing. So because I was signed to a band's label. And this is nothing against the band, but I didn't have the like A and R support that most artists get when they go to a label. It was um, so like at Warner, I didn't have an A and R person. I had Tom right. Wally, right. so everything went directly to him. But he's not; he wasn't like working with me daily to to A and R the project. So, and then what's interesting is same thing kind of happened when I signed to Interscope and you know, and with Alex the Kid now and, and all that stuff, like I didn't have an A and R at Interscope. Right. Um so it was like a similar situation. That's interesting. We'll get to that for sure. Um so you release your first album and it's obviously it's, you know, under Holly Brook. Mm-hmm. Is why did you change your name and was that hard to do? Or was it a relief to do that? Well, I changed my name later because I, I put out this album as Holly Brooke and I just felt everything crumble and I went broke and yeah. I couldn't afford to live in LA and I had to leave. And Where did you go? I went to Oregon, um, moved to a cabin in the woods up there. My mom had a friend with a big property with this like empty space that she liked to call it like an artist retreat. And so she let me stay there and return for working in the art gallery. And how long were you up there? I was there for about four months solid, and then um, kind of went back and forth. I got a gig doing a musical down in San Diego for a month, so I did that, and then I went back to Oregon. Um, yeah, but it was like a period where I, in my life where I was like, I don't know, maybe I made a mistake. Like maybe music isn't for me. Because my record deal and all of my first album didn't do so well, and and everything kind of fell apart. And I I hit writer's block really bad at that time. I was very uninspired. Go, going broke as a musician is like is in in retrospect is always the best thing that can happen. Totally, because it gets gets you back in touch with why you do it. Like I think I got caught up in the game of like I'm doing this for the success of it now. Like when I was in LA and then I had to go away to the woods and make no money to realize that I do music because I love music and it makes me feel good to do music and that's why I do it you know so I had to kind of relearn that and fall back in love with music what got you out of the funk in Oregon I mean what was it was it a song or was it 
I'm I'm going back. I'm gonna I'm because I've I love music and LA's the right place or you know how do you go from how do you dig yourself out of that hole? Um, I had to hit rock bottom and pretty much decided that I was gonna just like get a job and give up on music. Didn't last very long that decision, but I had to reach that point to then kind of like find myself uh, lifting out of it. And it's because I was just out there without anybody's opinions for a while. And so there was no, I lost all the people in my corner in the music industry, my manager, my lawyer, everybody quit after I lost my record deal and stuff. And so, plus broke up with my boyfriend and it was just all, you know, when it rains, it pours, one of those situations. And so just being out there by myself in the woods, nobody's opinions, um, you just get back in touch with who you really are in situations like that. How were your parents? How were your friends and family from home? What did they? How were they during that period? I honestly didn't tell them too much while I was going through it. I was a little proud and also a little embarrassed because I moved to LA, dropped out of high school. It was this, this whole to do, and then I like failed. So I didn't like to talk about it too much. I just kind of did my thing. I think telling telling my dad when I was you know I I got a record deal when I was twenty three which is a little older than that but by the time I was twenty eight I was like I can't afford the condo I'm in it's two thousand eight it's like the market's shit the labels are shit everyone's piracy there's nothing good happening and I remember having to call my dad and be like I'm uh, I'm just not gonna pay my mortgage anymore and this moment of like I can't. Ooh. You know, I can't afford it. Yeah, I just couldn't afford it. It was like I, and I, I was. I assumed the next day the bank was going to show up at my place and kick me out. But everyone was foreclosing at the time, so they let yeah. me stay in that that space for a while. And it was, I just remember when they finally gave me the date where I had to move out. I, I got to live there like for eighteen months. Um, um, you always have to pay your homeowners. Here's some advice for you out there: if you're ever foreclosing, <laughs> you have to pay your homeowners because they can sue you. But the banks were would just like let it go. It was mm. just a write off. So homeowners was like three hundred dollars. So I basically I just needed to come up with three hundred dollars a month, and I could live there until the bank came and took my place. And I just remember during that was like when I wrote, you know, right at the end was like, okay, I have to write, you know. Some sort of hit or cuts to get yeah. myself out of this, and I want to write songs that I might as well go down swinging. And it's like that's when I wrote the bulk of, you know, the musical I'm working on. It's still to this day, you know, wow. It's like it's when I wrote my first songs that were on like half these things that are on my wall were written. <laughs> I feel like we're written in that that last six months of being like, well. This ended up this Maroon Five song, this CeeLo song, and this Nicki Minaj song all got me, you know, a publishing deal. That as soon as the bank came and took my place, I signed the publishing deal. Wow. <laughs> this week's episode is sponsored by BMI. At BMI, music moves their world just like it moves mine. BMI is my performing rights organization. They're the bridge between people who create music like me and the businesses that bring it to the public. They make sure I get paid when my music is streamed on apps or shows, played on radio, at live shows, or in bars, gyms, basically anywhere where music is played. 
And they do this for over 900,000 songwriters, composers, and music publishers with more than 14 million songs across genres. But it's more than that. They help us navigate the music industry. They create opportunities for aspiring writers and composers through stages at festivals, song camps, and workshops. And they connect us with the right people. They're also on Capitol Hill fighting for copyright protection and fair royalties. And they work hard to ensure the future of music. They have my back and they'll have yours. Learn more at BMI.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. From garage bands to Grammy winners, Banzoogle powers the websites for thousands of musicians around the world. Their simple step-by-step system will get you online in minutes. Choose from dozens of mobile-friendly templates, customize your design and content in just a few clicks. Built for musicians by musicians, Banzoogle has all the features you need for your website and EPK already built in, including a merchant download store to sell music and merch commission-free right on your website. Use your tour calendar to promote your shows and sell tickets commission-free. Mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send professional newsletters. Integrations to pull in content from all your online services, including Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud. And live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. Go to banzoogle.com to start your 30-day free trial and be sure to use the promo code ATWI to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's banzoogle.com. Use the promo code ATWI to build your website today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I didn't know where I was going to go. I just didn't have any money. Yeah. And I'd been here and I had a degree in music and I thought like I had a, two record deals and I think I was I was afraid that I I just am not qualified to do anything else. The only thing I've ever done in my life well, is Well, so I had that music. realization out in the woods was like I cuz I, you know, tried some jobs and I sucked. And I was a high school dropout, so it's not like anybody would hire me for a decent pay anyway. And I was like I have to figure out a way to make a living in music. But first I had to fall back in love with music. And yeah. realize, okay, yeah. I actually do love music. That was the first step. And then the second step was, okay, now how do I make a living at it, but also do it for the right reasons? 
hundred percent. You know, and so that was kind of where. What's, I, what's the first song you wrote out of that? Where you're like, oh shit. Well, so that's the crazy story is that I called my publisher, who was the only person left um, that I like, only relationship I had left really at that point, um, or only person I was tied to. I still had a rec- or a, a publishing deal. Who is and who's that? UMPG, and it was mm. Jennifer Blakeman. And nice. I and I reached out to her, and I hadn't talked to her in like two years or something. And I said, Jennifer, I have to figure out a way to make a living in music, and you're the only person I have left. So mm. help me. Like, what do we do? And at the time, it was like what they what they needed the most was hooks for hip hop songs. And she was like, you could write hooks in your sleep. And so she introduced me to Alex the Kid, who had just had a, a song out called Airplanes. Yeah. And then he sent me a track on uh, email because we, we got introduced over email because he was in New York and I was in this cabin in the woods. And then um, I wrote the hook to Love the Way You Lie and sent it back. And that was the first song we did. And it was like a huge number one song a month later. Um, that's <laughs> like, so sick. So crazy. Like I was literally rock bottom. I don't even know how to, I had to go outside to use the bathroom. This cabin was like rustic. What did you, <laughs> at that point, do you think, well, now I can quit music? Or is this is that when you're like, okay, I got it. Well, I got it now. You know what's crazy? Now I figured it out. Or is it like, no, you know what, it, this was stupid. It this whole me thing out. Stupid. It freaked me out because I, I wrote that song and it was like my first song basically that I wrote out of this like soul searching experience, which proved to me I did the right thing by leaving and soul searching and all that stuff because then I wrote the song. Um, but then it freaked me out because I was like, okay, this may be my peak as, as a songwriter. Like yeah. this is a, a diamond selling song. Like how am I ever going to do that again? Yeah. So then it freaked me out. And then, you know, people had all these high expectations. They were like wanting their love the way you lie. Any like, People were reaching out to me from all over the place and, and wanting me to write them a song at that point. And I just, I put so much pressure on myself. I was like, I have to give a hit like this, a diamond hit to every person who comes to my door or, come, or calls me. And it like, it tore me up inside. Like that pressure, it gave me so much anxiety. About especially coming from being like I'm in a cabin. Yes, I'm a diamond selling writer. Yes, but I have to pee outside. This is so confusing. I mean, that's just it, not- it was literally like it was it was such a like a mind fuck. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. and. And it's still probably a mind fuck. It still it's is. not like on some level you can still be like I, you know once you go through that soul searching experience, like it you get a PTSD. I mean, you just do. Like, if you have to go and move back to Oregon, then you know what it's like to lose it all. Yeah. And then you know, and then you know what it's like to gain it all. So you really appreciate the gaining it all, and you're like, oh. But I will say, you know. living in that cabin in the woods was amazing. Yeah. And that's why I live in Napa in a small house in the woods. Like, I it's important to me to always remember why I do music. And if I moved back to LA, I, you know, I'm a very malleable kind of soul, and so. I could easily get sucked back into the the process here that got me so messed up in the first place mentally. And so it's like really important for me to maintain that like connection to nature and peace with uh, peace and quiet and and just being with my own thoughts. And that's why I live in Napa and I don't live in LA and I just fly down here to work and then I go home, recharge um and just continue to like practice that, you know, being in touch with who I really am thing. 
Well, you do that very well. It's so important to, to my writing. But quickly after you did Love the Way You Lie, you end up with just, well, I mean, you did Coming Home, which is also just kind of huge. Mm-hmm. You know? That's and, a strange song because it wasn't as big as Love the Way You Lie at first, but it's one of those songs that like will live forever. Because yeah. it's a subject matter that they continuously you use. You see it. And it's, just, it's probably like your, maybe your most licensed song, it I is. feel like. You know, it 100% it's just, it it's is. in everything. Yeah. And, you, and you it never noticed, died. What? It never died. Yeah. You know, like it, it maybe died on radio, but it keeps coming, popping back up. I keep approving things for that song like yeah. every day. <laughs> it's amazing. You notice that when other people um, have those songs, because, those are, you know, you can have. There's, I think, my second most valuable song is one that most people don't know. It just got licensed so much, and it's worth more than other songs I've had that went number one. Yeah. But just went up, got number one, no licenses, went away. Yeah. That's like a different thing than like the the song that sticks around and keeps getting in that movie, that commercial, that skit, whatever it is. That shit is worth. So much more. Yeah. Than, than, well, and it's the longevity of it. So it's like passive income the rest of your life for stuff yeah. like that rather than like a big check next year, you know? Well, plus you sing on it. So you get, you know, SAG after and you get all this yeah, other stuff. Those other, other things. It's like all the yeah. ancillary parts. Um, you do I Need a Doctor right kind of after that too. I mean, you, you are you starting to feel famous at that point? Mm, no, not really. I mean, I, I'm starting to feel. More recognized and like as a songwriter, um, respected. Yeah. Which was nice because I put in 20 something years of work and never felt that way before. So um, it was really nice. Well, and having, having one hit is one thing, having that diamond hit years later is another. And then to be able to follow it, follow it up so many times puts mm-hmm. you in a place where. You know you're not a fluke. You know it wasn't just a one-time thing, and all that pressure you're probably putting on yourself after the after love the way you lie. I'm sure you felt some relief after two, three, four more hits, like in a year. Yeah, I did. I did for sure. But at the same time, like the pressure I put on myself didn't stop. And you know what's funny is I didn't like even though people were reaching out to me to do sessions all the time and to like write them songs or whatever, I turned down almost every session because I was too scared. I was too scared to be in the room with other people like judging me and expecting me to write something amazing. And Do you still feel that way? No, I actually, um, I only really started doing sessions about a year ago, like November of How last like year. It? I like it. I definitely am starting to develop a list of rules for what sessions I will oh, do. Yeah. Um, what are they? Well, I always prefer if the artist is in the room. That's a big one for me. And also because I live in in Napa, I have to really think about like, is it worth me flying to LA to do this session? I don't really like doing sessions to pitch a song for pitch. Like those type of sessions I don't really like doing. I like working directly with an artist. Or if it's a song for pitch, I want to stay home, do it in my own house and do it because I'm inspired. You know, not because I'm like, I have to. Sure. You know, like if the like a lot of times that that's movies. So I do a lot of movie soundtrack stuff, and the movies are inspiring to me because there's like a storyline and there's an emotion that I can latch onto, and then I'm like, I want to write a song for that. You know, um, so if I want to write something for it, then I do. But I, I just I 
definitely don't take a lot of sessions. Right. Just like random. And I also, like last year when I first started doing sessions and, and like, oh, here's another rule. I don't like to write more than three days a week. Why? Because I am so analytical like we were talking about. It's so mentally exhausting to write a song for me that it wears me out and I get tired. And so I'd, I'd rather do like three writing sessions and then, you know, maybe the last couple days of the week I work on the, re- the recording of it and like make sure that the vocals are good and whatever. But I, so I'll be working on music, but not necessarily writing. Has that helped your batting average or lowered it? Or is it's it? It's helped like- because it keeps me going back to do more sessions. I think you don't burn out that I way. don't burn out. Yeah. Um, and it makes me excited to go back. And another rule is um, I have to. It has to be people that are fun to work with. It has to be an enjoyable experience. If I'm in a room and I'm not enjoying myself, then I'm like, what's the point of this? Because you don't know what a song's going to do. You don't know if it's going to be successful or not. All you have is that moment. Was it fun writing this song? Because that's why I do it. I do it because it's fun. It's, I do it because I enjoy making music. And if I'm not enjoying it, it's totally pointless to me. And so I did a lot of sessions with, you know, random people and kind of, you know, have found some people I love working with and then found some people that I don't really care to do sessions with again. Um, this is one of the best parts about, you know, when you're in a band, you're married to those people. Yeah. And when you're a songwriter, if you don't like them, you just don't have to show up the next time. Totally. You know, it's like it's just a day to try it out. And if you love the people, then you end up writing with them all the time because you have the same goal. Yeah. You know, chemistry and, is a real thing. You know, with with music making, just like any kind of relationship. Do you still get you introduced to, to new writers, or do you, is it more that yeah. you? Yeah, well, because I just started like. writing with people a year ago, so I'm like new to the songwriting world. I know it's a small world, but I'm kind of new to it still. Like, I'm still like learning all the the different cats in the game, yeah. like in their names and being able to recognize the names of these writers. Well, welcome. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> Clarity's a huge record, and even though that's not your voice, it certainly feels like your writing voice in a way. Like you're the. That's it, a cool thing to say, the writing voice. You know, like I feel like you listen to that, and I hear you in that that song. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because I actually had very little to do with the writing of that song. Really? Yeah. Why? Who did um, that then? You know, Matthew Coma. Yeah. So he was the main writer of that song. Okay. And he, it's kind of a crazy story that I haven't really told. Um, but I I got asked to potentially sing the song and it was like half written. And so I finished it with him and sang it. And then my vocals didn't make the cut. Whoa. Yeah. Was that a first? Mm, I don't know if it was the first time that's happened. Were you were you offended by it, or do you look at it as like that's awesome? Still, that I didn't have to put my voice on it, or is this no? I really loved the song, so I was a little offended. Um, But I also knew it was a little bit out of my range, and I didn't sound great on it, so I totally understood. It was too high for me. I mean, I feel like you hear it all the time. It's a it's a song that as a as a writer, you can still should be proud of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely I love that song and I'm I'm proud of the collaboration, but I just I was a little bummed when I couldn't be on it. But during that era, you start recording and writing your 
solo album, right? Isn't like right after Clarity, right around then's when you start when you I'm start. I'm not exactly releasing. sure what the timeline was of all of that. Well, probably. I can tell you. Oh, you did the research, okay? Yeah, you probably know better than I do. <laughs> Yo, same my first rodeo, homie. Okay, so it was 2012 when you did Clarity, or at least when it came out, and then you have. Uh, you know, Don't Look Down comes out later in 2012, and in 2013 is when the album comes out. Okay. Give or take. That sounds about right. <laughs> so why do you decide to go and do your a solo album when you've been on, you're like on hit after hit, you write for all these, you know, or other people are cutting your songs. Are, why the desire to still do your own album? And who was like, was it Alex the Kid that said, hey, why don't you... Signed a kid in a corner, or was it Eminem? I I mean, like, how did this all work? I first signed with Alex the Kid when I did Love the Way You Lie. Like, we had a little production deal that became a thing. And then he took me to Interscope. And, you know, it was just part of the what you do. You sign to a label and you make an album. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know? Were Um, you more proud of this than the debut album, which. I guess well, I think of the Holly Brook as the debut. There, there yeah. might be an album in between these. No, Don't Look Down was the first album on Interscope. So do you? You know, that's your first album out as an artist since yeah. Holly Brook. How did you feel about that? The process and all oh, of- that reminds me. I never answered the question of why I changed my name, but oh, yeah. I had a. Re- I'm just gonna kind of go back to that for a quick, quick second. I uh, Because of that like reinvention and resurgence back into the music industry, I didn't want people to like know my history as the girl who like signed to Warner Brothers and failed. <laughs> so I, I created a new name to come back and like try again. Because people don't necessarily get a second chance all the time. And so I was like, well, I'm getting a second chance right now. And and you know, part of it also was that I, I wanted to completely change my identity um, for like artistic reasons. But then also, I was just like, people will see this as a fresh new thing versus this like old worn out thing. I mean, it's so it's super <laughs> brave considering that you said that you didn't want to tell people because of pride the, about the struggle at the end of it. That how brave it must be to still go and then tell your parents like, hey. This is me on everything. I'm Skylar Gray. Like that's a it's hard to it's hard to have a, a stage name. I was too I was way too late in it and it's hard to come out and say this is me. Cuz it is even though it's like kind of an alter ego. Yeah. You know. It's totally an alter ego. It's like a superhero. Yeah. And it's a superhero name. Where did you yeah. get the name from? Um well gray was my favorite color because it represented the unknowns in life which provide, you know, uh, opportunity. Yeah, people are afraid of the unknowns, and I always dove into them because you know that's where you you find the great stuff outside of your comfort zone. You know, and so gray was like a like a like religion, and then also because when I was living in Oregon, the sky was always gray. It was rainy, so like the Skylar Gray situation kind of oh. just happened from that. I like that. Yeah, I, um, appro- I approve. Thank you. So then, but then you can I keep it. So, yeah. <laughs> so then I made this the debut album as Skylar Gray. That brings us to that. Right. Um and it was kind of like again, like I had all this success with these other people, but I really wanted to put out my own songs. What what to do with that creative like creatively? Like 
I was working with a lot of rappers, mostly hip hop stuff, but I'm not a rapper. So like, how do I take those fans and, you know, get them to listen to my own solo stuff? So it was like trying to like genre blend a little bit by putting kind of like urban beats with not urban songs. That was kind of like the the vision for that first album as Skylar Gray. Do you view that as successful? The album? Yeah. Um, not really. Cause I feel like I was trying to like force something to happen with the with the creative on it a little bit. What would you have done differently? I don't know what I would have done. I I don't think I would have done anything differently. I like where it like it's a definitely like a part of my evolution. Yeah. You know, I don't think I would go back and change anything. But uh I was proud to be a part of it. Oh, thank you. In yeah. a very minimal way. Was that the first song on the album? It was. That was huge for me. I mean, and at that point I had just started getting cuts and I had started working with more sort of relevant artists and relevant producers and stuff like that. And I remember you were going into JR and JR say, "Hey, can I play this idea?" Because I played it on piano in, yeah, my, and I in love, my house. I love that. Hook. And I'm similar to you, where I think I write my best when I'm at home alone. Yeah. And then I bring in ideas a lot, but yeah. like I, I, I don't always create magic in the room. Like that's not really when I write my my best. I'm probably totally writing my most magic when I'm walking my dog in the morning, and then I come home and I like play it on piano. Or a guitar, mm-hmm. and then I bring it in that day. So when he said he was playing it for you, I was like, "Oh, that's so sick," you know. And Aww. then, and then you, you know, and then obviously I worked with Blink One Eighty Two recently, and Travis is featured on it. So I was like, "Yo, oh, we have rad, a, yeah, we have a co-write together." So yeah, like, shit. it's kind of the song that keeps on giving to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, Aww, it, I love that. I think I it's in, that. I think it's important to also see, you know, and I asked if you thought it was successful because. I kind of think when you release, I always, you know, you just can't control how how commercially successful something is. But if if you're putting out stuff that you're proud of, like that's really the only thing that you can control. Yeah, you know, part of it is that um, I I went on tour with Bruno Mars and opened for him back then. And I was discovering that a lot of this music that I made for myself was very hard to sing live. And that caused a problem for me. Yeah, so like writing and singing and recording stuff in the studio is one thing, but like getting on stage every night doing that music is a completely different ball game. And I learned that I, if I was going to be an artist and perform these songs, I needed to write songs that I could perform. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I didn't think about that before I made that album, so that was part of it. Well, I don't want to. Ju- you know, I'm going to jump through a couple years just because I want to, okay. and there's because there's some songs that I want to talk about. Um, I feel like every like the if if coming home is your most licensed and your second one, you kind of just released with glorious. Yeah, it's it is licensed everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. Why, like? It's just it's that same another situation where you can't predict. It, I can't imagine that that was like a predictable. Like yes, this is going to be a song that just will get played in perpetuity. Or was it? I mean, what's the process of that song? Well, that was a a situation. Featuring, oh, Ma- Macklemore, by the yes, way. Featuring, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I have told 
my publisher and everybody that like if I'm doing songs for other artists, like I don't want to just write songs to pitch to them. I want to work with them. And um, we had also recently heard from Macklemore's people that he was interested in in uh, working with me or whatever. And so got in the room with him and he already had written verses and he said the word glorious in the second verse, which I thought was cool because that word is like, nobody says that word, yeah. but he did. And I was like, he's going to make it glorious, cool again. So like I took that word and I, and he needed a hook for the song. And I was like, let's, let's write this, this song about glorious. And, and so then sat down at the piano, wrote the hook, uh, How melody. long did it take you to write that hook? You know, the melody came really fast, and then like the main part, the glorious, glorious part, came really fast. The lyrics in between, we kind of uh, sat down as a crew yeah. in the room and, and filled in the the lyrics together, and and then I sang it, and I I mean that was just a I was just going to be a, the writer on that song. Like I imagined some gospel kind of singer on it, right? But um, in the end, he liked my voice on it and kept it. You like that Wisconsin tone. I guess so. Um, that Wisconsin. I would assume that Walk on Water, Eminem featuring Beyonce, is that kind of crafting of that lyric, to me, sounds like a month. But maybe that's just something that comes off the top of your head. That was one that just came out of nowhere. Damn you. Yeah. Damn you. It's crazy. So that's actually... I've, I, one of my proudest hooks is that hook. Oh yeah, uh, it's lyrically, so good. and it, it came to me actually just as a poem first. I was just sitting outside in LA at this house that I was staying at, and and I don't know where it came from, but like these four lines: "I walk on water, but I know Jesus. I walk on water, but only when it freezes." Just like came to me. I wrote it down in my notes, um, and then it, it, I saved it. And then uh, about like six months later, I was talking to Paul Rosenberg about M's new project and what was he working on and what kind of stuff did he want. And we talked for a while and then I remembered that lyric I wrote down and I thought, wow, that could be perfect for him because, you know, he is kind of like a god. Yeah. And you like to sing that song, I feel you kind of have to be at that status or to to have that hook. And so... um, I thought it would be interesting to hear what he would write verses wise of, uh, to to that kind of hook, and so I went back and brought out the lyric and sat at the piano and just kind of put it to music, and it really quickly just came out. I mean, when you get the perfect rhyme that you can base a concept on, or you know, if the, if the concept is in the rhyme scheme like that, it's. Those those are the moments where you run home, you know. At least for me, yes. I'm like, I need to write that. That yes. rhyme is way too good yeah. to just, you know, let sit in a notebook. Uh, and all of us scroll through our notes where, where it's just shitty ideas after shitty ideas. And then there's like the few that you're like, oh man, this is so good. I'm just waiting for the right time to use it. You know? Yeah, totally. That was one of those I was waiting for the right time to use it. Yeah. And I did. And but the funny thing about that song is I gave it to I sent it to Eminem and didn't hear back for a while. And um in the meantime, my publisher had sent it to Pink and she wanted it. She put it she like actually put it on hold. And then in the end I I had to unfortunately pull it. But Beyonce. I know. No, this was like going to be a solo oh, pink oh, I ballad. See, I see, like the reverse yeah, is yeah, written yeah. to "Walk on Water," like yeah. singing verses. Yeah. Um, 
So hopefully, actually, I want to release that version of it at some point. Yeah, I like that you did. You know, uh, uh, love the way you lie, acoustic version. Yeah. You know, I think that, especially as a songwriter, that shit is so fun. It's fun, and it's also like for the people. I mean, I don't know if it's because my parents don't really like rap music, but for the people who don't really like rap music, I, <laughs> I like. I'm like, yeah. but here's this version too. Yeah. You know, it, it is a really good song. And Do you still feel like you're trying to Im- Im- impress your parents? I think slightly. Yeah. Yeah. Do they recognize sort of the brand you've created? Like, do they do your dad who was nervous about your music career? What does he think about it now? I think he's proud of me. Uh, he knows I'm making a good living, and I turned music into a career. Um, I don't think he likes all my music by any means, and he definitely doesn't like my tattoos. But yeah, my my parents <laughs> didn't didn't get anything I did until. They could sing a country song that was in a karaoke book. That's yeah. when they were like, oh, "Well, I think having like a Grammy nomination it. validated it for yeah. my dad yeah. quite a bit." And I actually called him when I got the Grammy nomination. Woke him up. He was in bed yeah. and told him. And I, because I just like wanted to like make him proud. Sure. So you're working on a new album, right? Or you're. I'm working on new music. I don't know that albums are the way to go anymore. Right. I'm having this internal debate. Because I love albums as a listener, but with the current state of, you know, the music industry with technology and streaming and all that stuff, it's like, does it really make sense to make albums or just to like put out songs? You know? Yeah, it depends how cohesive the album is. Yeah, that's you know? true. I mean, I think I think if it's a collection of singles, release singles. If it's an album because the records make up an album, then release an album. But I think a lot of times, in to me, there's there's no logic in putting out an album if the, the songs don't have anything to do with each other. I also you know think I mean? though that people have like their attention span these days is just so low that yeah. I feel like it's better to just keep throwing stuff at people rather than once. Like here's my album. You know, or like, here's a song, and then next month, here's a song, and then next month, here's a song, and just staying in front of people, invisible, and like continuously, uh, continuously putting stuff out, and you know, also alongside those singles, putting out, even if it's not a single that like is one that you're pushing with a bunch of money behind it and going to radio, just putting out content because a lot right. of it's internet driven and Instagram driven now, anyways. So it's like put a little video uh, with it and. A cheap music video and some behind the scenes stuff, and do a live video, live version of it, and put out the song, and then do the same thing again the next month with a different song. You know, like I kind of feel like that might be more more the way to go for me coming up. I've never asked anybody this, and this sounds like a job interview question, but where do you see yourself in like ten years? Um, I just. I see myself living in probably Napa still, in a in just being in that beautiful environment with Elliot, my fiance, which hopefully we'll be married by then, and um, <laughs> yeah. just making music and enjoying it and having no pressure and just making music because it's fun and then having being able to continue to make a living doing that. Yeah, um, I I would love. We're currently trying to figure out how to get people to come up and, I mean, 
a lot of songwriters I talk to are super interested in leaving LA to do sessions. Sure. And be, you know, coming up to a beautiful place like Napa. Depends um, how much wine's up there, honestly. Well, there's definitely wine. Oh, there is? <laughs> I'll be right there. Uh, and then, you know, like having my little studio set up there and then, you know, inviting people to come work up there in this like really inspiring, peaceful environment. I'd like to be doing more of that um, and traveling less myself. I'm not a huge fan of traveling and I do it like at least once a week. I I fly somewhere. So, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. sort of the curse of being an artist, too. Yeah. That's level, true. You know? um, and that's another kind of internal debate I'm having because I do like playing live, I don't like being on tour. So figuring out the balance of how many shows am I like willing to do a year and like, well, that's where mu- musical theater and and Vegas make a lot of sense for artists. I mean, yeah. you know, if you can have the the tour come to you, yeah, totally. There's, there's something amazing about creating yeah. an environment where you have a standing show somewhere. So you yeah, know. I love that. If I was twenty, I'd be like, put me on the road. I want to be a road dog yeah. for two years. But right. I'm thirty two now, yeah. and um. You know, I love my home life so much, and I love making music at home in my sweats and not having to wear makeup and that whole thing, and like having to pick out an outfit every day that I've, nobody's ever seen before. This like, this only <laughs> this only gets worse, by the way. You yeah. know, like it does. It's not like you get older and you're like, you know what? I'm gonna go hit the road again. Yeah, like that's not like if you you know. Yeah, I imagine and, uh, that most I do, people are like I want to get to bed by eight thirty. It's like my dreams. No, I'm like turning into an 80 year old early for sure. (laughs) Um, But I do love the being on stage and performing the songs. I do love that part of it. It's the traveling around it and stuff that I really don't like. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a way to do a standing show, uh, you know, uh, or a monthly thing in Napa and people can come see you. Yeah. Like a residency or. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like there's. People drink wine and get a chance to hear you play piano. Yeah, like the way that you write all your songs. Like, I mean, who's not in Napa? Wouldn't be like, yeah, let's go see that. That could be cool, but I definitely think growing the presence online is is key too. Yeah. I've been kind of anti that, and I'm starting to realize that I have to be pro that. Like, yeah. I have to be more active on Instagram and stuff like that. I just worry. I always wonder about that, and I and I because some some big stars. Aren't totally social media savvy, and I just don't ever want it to become the MySpace you should friend people thing. You know, like at some point, some of these, just when you like are building up your followers, whatever that means on social media, that the media jumps to something else, or the followers start. You know, the next generation stops on stops going on Facebook, and you've spent all this time building your Facebook presence. So then you go to Instagram, but the mm-hmm. next one does Snapchat, but then Snapchat goes away, and I, I don't know what what's going what's on right next? now. But <laughs> but the idea of spending, you know, for the for the sole purpose of building the audience versus finding ways to make it part of your brand. Yeah. You know, if it's something you really care about, I think I'm that, just trying you know, to figure out how to stay home as much as possible but also yeah. build a fan base. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, that's where my um, brain's going, you know. All right, so this next segment week is 5 for 5. I'm going to name five things and you just tell me, you know, the first thing that comes off the top of your head. Okay. We're going to start with generations. Like I don't know. I don't have this. I don't know. I mean, it's your first project. It's the project that like teaches you how to become a musician, right? Yeah. You know, it's like you're the first music you ever recorded. I feel like that's got to be like a thing that you 
I don't know. Are you close with your mom? Yeah. I don't know, tell um, me something about your mom. Do well, you look fondly on it? Yeah. On that time? Yeah, I was embarrassed about it when I was like a teenager. Why? Because I was a teenager singing with my mom kid songs. Uh. It wasn't cool. But when I was younger than that, it was fine. And what um, about now? And now looking back, I'm really glad I did it. Yeah, I learned so much about like performing and being professional and all of that like fundamental stuff that you need to know. See, doing this that. industry. It wasn't too hard. Okay, that I didn't know if that's what you wanted or if you wanted me to just be like random word that pops in my head when you say generations. Rainbow. Like <laughs> I wasn't quite sure I, what you were looking you for. You can do that too. Here. Uh, I was gonna I was gonna go with uh, Mike Shinoda, Brad Delson, Lincoln Park. You great. can say rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great learning experience for me. Yeah. I got my I got chewed up and spit out by the industry during that time and learned all the hardest lessons I needed to learn going into yeah. the future. Let's go with Eminem. Eminem, um, mentor, um, idol. He's been so, so supportive and generous to me. We were just on tour together. Um, he's amazing. Alex the Kid. Alex the Kid. We've had our ups and downs. But right now things are really good, and um, there's something definitely something magic that we have when we make music together. Because I did coming home, I need a doctor, and love the way you lie with him. I'm gonna go with Napa as my last home. Let's see, what about Napa? Napa is my happy place, and it has wine, it has my studio, and it has the love of my life and nature. So all the things that really make me happy. Well, on that note, thank you for doing this. I appreciate that. And uh, you know, I said in the intro that I said this writer has designed one of the most unique and honest careers of any writer we've had. And the reason why I said that was because I feel like if I listen to the songs you wrote, I know you. And I don't know if I can say that about any writer we've had. And for some reason, even though I don't, you and I have really never spent time together. um, I feel like I've followed the journey enough that, and listened to the music enough to have sort of an opinion that's a positive opinion about this human who kind of bleeds music. It all feels like it's deeper than just this surface level. Like I'm a pop writer and just trying to make money, and I'm just none of it feels like that. To me, I listen to those songs, and you hear, you know, yeah, Eminem needs to be the 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 guy who does Jesus, you know, that walks on water, and you know. But I feel like that what you were talking about, the pressure that you had in Oregon about following up a success, you know, a success like Love the Way You Lie, that that's describing yourself too. It is. It you totally know? is. I, and, I, I approach all songwriting from a very personal place. Like if I'm the artist, I can't do songwriting in any other way. That, I mean, I think you've achieved that. And I think that, you know, you have fans. Of you as an artist, but you have you have a ton of fans of you as a writer because you you go a level deeper than most writers could dream to go. So I 
you know, it's it's about the nicest compliment I can give a human. Thank so, you so much. Um, you wow. should you can take that with you when you <laughs> when you fly up home, and then man, uh, thank you. You know, sit at a piano and send me whatever you write because I'm curious. I kind of <laughs> wish I could just like phone it in sometimes, you mm. know, and just like write a song that I'm not too analytical. Like I was talking about the analytical part, like a getting getting so deep and and it's why would mentally you ever exhausting. Want that? Yeah. That's the part of it that I always say. Like, I mean, I, I guess hate, that's what makes the song good. I don't like writing songs. I love having written songs. Yeah. Writing a song for me is brutally difficult. Yeah, it can be really hard. It, you know, even when it's fun, I don't write like club bangers on purpose. If I've ever been a part of anything that's like that, it's because somebody decided to produce it out that way. Gotcha. Not because I meant it to be yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like I. And especially like when I write for myself or I'm writing something, you know, in you know, in in other worlds for me, it's spend so much time making sure that I love every lyric and I love what it says and mm-hmm. how it sings and all the things that that I wish music was. Yeah. I like the struggle. Yeah. It's but that, I, that that, that's what I don't understand about people who are able to write seven days a week though. Like how but is that mean not it's so good. exhausting? Yeah, and and also like the industry has a you you've witnessed this. They have if you're the the flavor because you're young and you're new in it, then like everybody will squeeze it for everything mm-hmm. it has. We've had a lot of guests on here, and I know a lot of them listen to it, and they're friends of ours who have gone through the grind of being like this person is hot right now. Get her in a room for. Two times a day, seven days a week, to the point of exhaustion, of depression, of all the things that you should never do to a human. But it's so labels and publishers can exploit somebody's talent and try to squeeze out whatever they got. But I don't think that anybody does seven days a week and is happy. Okay. Because like, I kind of like see that sometimes and I'm like, man, do I just like. And they're happy? Not happy. I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell necessarily. But and by the way, happy is maybe not the right word yeah. because I think happy is not like a, a real tangible thing. But I, you know, I would imagine that a lot of the people who write seven days a week, two sessions a day, have so many emotional issues with communicating to people how they feel. I bet they maybe. they repeat melodies all the time, repeat concepts all the time. I can't imagine they're capturing something unique 14 songs a week. Right. I don't think that that's possible. And and look, I know there are people who who've done it and I think it's easier if you're on the music side than on the lyric side. Yeah. You know, but there was a study that came out this week or not this week, this year where the difference between a number 1 song from number 1 songs in tempo and in um in lyric quality has diminished it's closer this year than any other where there have been years where I think the the craziest year they had was I want to say it was you know something like um, when plain white tees did uh, hey there Delilah was on acoustic guitar and the and then there was also you know probably some like David Guetta kind of you know four on the floor kind of track and that the the difference in tempo was massively different at that time and then right now because producers literally take tracks 
wipe out the instrumentation, use the same drum pattern, move things around a little bit, but it's literally the same drum tones, the dream, same mm-hmm. drum sounds, and you know, there's you can create an incredible quanti- quantity of yeah. music that way, where you don't start from scratch and you just copy and paste your parts. It is not hard to write a, a, a basic track. I think it's always hard to find something quality and good. But if you're on the music side of things right now, I, I imagine that it's easier for people to do 14 um, tracks in a week. Yeah, you know, maybe not good tracks, but you can do that. I don't even think you can write 14 shitty songs in a week as a lyricist. Gosh, I you can't know? even imagine. That sometimes it makes like, me feel bad terrible. that I see some people being so like pro- prolific, and like I'm like, it makes me feel bad about myself. <laughs> but what do you see? You're seeing, you're seeing something different. Yeah, it's you're like, not seeing what it is. <clears throat> you you don't you don't follow yeah, anybody like that. I don't see like all that. the songs. I don't. I mean. They could all be shit. I don't know. Yeah, it does. It also doesn't mean the songs are good just because they're out, and it doesn't yeah. mean that they're just because they're singles doesn't mean that they're going to be a hit, and just because they're a, a hit doesn't mean they'll be able to follow that up for multiple years. I mean, you're talking about we've been talking about you know your first music coming out as a hit. Where are we back? We're back in what you know over ten years of having hits like. Yeah. I would much rather have that longevity where you, you can still envision your career 10 years from now than be like, I wrote these incredible hits between 2008 and 2010, the mm-hmm. end. But I, I burnt out and was like, I'm going to go live in a cabin yeah. in Oregon. <laughs> no, it's super important to like yeah. enjoy the journey and enjoy making the music every day and, and have the longevity. That's way yeah. more important to me, yeah. for sure. Well, I'll let that be your advice to new and up and coming writers. Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you and for having I appreciate me. You. So excited that you uh, had me today. Thanks for listening to this episode of And the Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.